Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Yes, it is another half hour of Too Much Science, where Too Much Science is not... Well, it's not enough. Too Much Science is not enough, (laughs) is what I'm thinking. Um, My name is Chris, and I have a question for you. Oh, yeah? Kids today. Um, That's not a question, that's a statement. (laughs) What do you think about the kids drinking today? Um, Drinking drinking? alcohol or water? Is it a problem, you reckon? Cordial? Oh, I don't know. Probably... Probably not as much as you think it is. No, it isn't actually. This is an interesting thing. Um, new study uh, that has shown that young Australians are drinking about half of what they did 10 years ago. Oh, the same age, 10 years ago. Not the same kind Not of the cohort. same kids. No, no. <laughs> not the 18-year-olds drinking half what they did when they were eight. That would be silly. Uh, no, but the, um, yeah, the youth drinking is declining. Um, right. Okay. So um, maybe they should do a concurrent study that looks at the crotchiness of, of old people and how much they complain about this sort of stuff. Maybe we should, but we'll try to get to the bottom of it. I'll <laughs> be speaking to Michael Livingston from La Trobe University about this study and, and what it actually shows. Mm. Claire, what have you got for us? Well, we're heading into the deep, dark depths of winter. and We're already as- there, surely. Yeah, but, I mean, we are. We are, aren't we? It's very cold at the moment. It is cold. It is cold. Well, some parts of the country. Some some parts of the country are very cold. Some parts of the country, it's snowing. Some parts of the country, it's 33 degrees, I hear. Darwin, I'm looking at you. However, at I mean, at this time of year, this is, people get a lot of colds. Oh, yeah. And one thing that people take when they have a cold is vitamin C. But does it actually work to reduce... The incidence of your cold or the duration of your cold, what's it all for? I'm going to have a look at vitamin C. I'm just going to put vitamin C on the table and just pick it to pieces. Great. Yeah. Good on you. Yeah. Mm. Stew. Uh, well, I, I discovered something. It was actually discovered a little while ago, a couple of years ago, yet another thing that animals have been doing for millions of years, which humans thought they invented. So I was going to have a look at... There's a, there's a number of things that we thought we invented oh. and only to go on to discover that animals were already doing the exact same thing. So I'm going to look at some, I guess, engineering principles and uh, other other crazy ideas that humans have had which actually already existed. We thought it was our idea, but yeah. we were wrong. Already existed in the animal kingdom. <laughs> yeah, It's great. Fantastic. Well, on with the show. Okay, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name's Chris, and I'm talking to Michael Livingston from the Centre for Alcohol Policy Research at La Trobe University. Thanks for talking to us, Michael. No problems. Now, Michael has been researching the amount that young Australians drink and the surprising drop in recent years. Now, is this true, Michael, that um, people are, young people are drinking less than they used to? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's coming up in all the surveys that are collected in Australia, and there's a, a number of different ways people collect these data through general population th- surveys through surveys in schools. We've done some work seeing how the trends in those surveys kind of match on to per capita consumption that's recorded by you know the Bureau of Statistics in terms of taxes and imports and exports. And the, and the okay. surveys match really well. So the surveys are measuring something. I mean, they, they, they capture less of the alcohol than the 
um, official statistics, because people all under-report a little bit. But the trends are, are sort of very similar. So the surveys seem like they're capturing something real. And in those surveys, young people's drinking is really plummeting. Since about 2001, teenagers, 14 to 17-year-olds, are drinking about half as much alcohol as they used to. Okay, so this is, when you say they're, they're drinking half as much, you mean... 14-year-olds today are drinking half as much as 14-year-olds 10 years exactly, ago. Exactly, right. exactly, yeah. And is this something that is seen in other countries as well as Australia? Yeah, it's actually very common. I was just at a conference in Stockholm, an alcohol research conference, and this is kind of the topic of interest at the moment because we're seeing very similar patterns in all of the Nordic countries, in the UK, in the US, in Canada, in New Zealand. And then, and they're all kind of similar countries in terms of their drinking cultures and their regulatory mm-hmm. kind of similar um, then you also see the same kind of declines in places like Germany and France, which have quite different approaches to alcohol. So it's, it seems like it's a very broad pattern amongst young people in kind of Western democratic countries. And it's taking us all kind of by surprise. And we're, we're all scratching our heads now trying to figure out, well, what can be behind this trend? And do you know, I guess, is the obvious question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd love to. We're, we're trying to. We're, we've got a whole bunch of theories, none of which are very well tested at this point, but all of which I think are kind of plausible and probably... There's not going to be a simple single reason that drives this pattern. It's going to be a complicated bunch of different things happening at the same time. But, I mean, the first candidate, I guess, uh, from the most recent paper I've done is that we had a cohort of people, my cohort, born in the 1970s and early 1980s, who were quite a heavy drinking cohort for the, right. you know, compared to previous generations. But you're, you're sober at the moment. Well, I'm mostly sober for this interview, yes. yes. Um, so that cohort came through and there were, if you, I don't know if you recall, in 2000 and early 2000s in Melbourne and the rest of the country, there was a lot of concern about alcohol problems. There were front page news stories almost every week about the violence on the streets and the heavy drinking of young people and that society's kind of attitude to alcohol has changed. And we've looked at various studies that show, in general, the community is much more conservative about alcohol. Media reports alcohol as much more of a problem than it used to, and people's perceptions have changed. and They think of alcohol as much more dangerous than they used to. So part of it could just be a reaction against times okay. that have gone yeah. by. Whether that's the case in all the other countries, I'm not entirely convinced of, but it, it, it's it's part of the story, I think, that there has been a kind of uh, an upswing in consumption through most of these countries in the early parts of the 2000s, and this is kind of a reaction against it. But I think there are more interesting theories, too, that look beyond. I mean, part of the problem we have in the field, I think, is we look so much at alcohol to explain alcohol, uh, alcohol policy and alcohol attitudes. And But there, it's obviously a bigger social component. You know, alcohol fits into society much more broadly. And my, my pet theory is that this reflects a change in the way young people socialise. Alcohol, for teenagers especially, is a very social drug, right? People drink to get the courage to talk to people, to go to parties, to be kind of different versions of themselves. And this cohort who are drinking less, this trend sort of starts in the early mid-2000s when social media takes off, when Facebook right. goes live and when, when the way young people socialise is kind of transformed. And in ways we don't really know. But it seems implausible to me that that would have no effect on the way people drink or who they drink with or how they meet people. And it just it matches the data so well. It happens in all these countries at the same time. It affects young people only. It's not going to affect a 35-year-old in 2003 because they've kind of set their social lives up already. But the fine evidence of, of the causal pathway there is still beyond us. But it's okay. it's a fun theory to explore. The, your first notion, what you're saying about the uh, the reaction to, say, to heavy drinking would imply that it's kind of a cyclical effect, that it would go up and down. And I imagine that's not something that's been seen well, not like this. My supervisor, his, one of his kind of pet theories is that there are these long waves of consumption of alcohol in society. And so you have, you know, in the 1920s, you have the temperance, or well, 1910s, the temperance movement, where after a big period of heavy drinking in the late 
1800s, there's a kind of big reaction against the problems and then a society cracks down and then they go too far and everyone's like, we don't want to be wowsers and we lift all the laws and things start to shift back the other way. So there is a kind of, historically, a kind of cycle, but this kind of trend amongst young people specifically is kind of mm. unprecedented. Usually things sort of all move roughly together and we've seen uh, a halving of, of teenage drinking and, and no shift in drinking amongst people aged sort of 30 and above. Another thing that people won't often see to jump on with something like this is the use of other drugs. Yeah, it's, it's actually the, it is the most common suggestion I get put to me when I talk about this. That, well, of course kids aren't drinking, they're all taking ice or they're all high. And from what we can tell, it's the opposite that's going on. Amongst this group, amongst teenagers, there's a, a pretty steady decline in reported use of cannabis, stable rates of prescription drug misuse, and, and really the other illicit drugs for, for teenagers are so uncommon that you can't pick up any real trend. We're talking about a percentage or two of the population who've tried anything except for cannabis, really, before they're 18. So if there is less drinking then, does this also mean that there is less risky drinking or less harm from alcohol? So the first study we did was look at just people who report drinking or not drinking as teenagers, and that showed this pattern. And then we looked at, well, what about the drinkers? How is their drinking changing? And we're seeing even amongst people who choose to drink as teenagers, they're drinking less than teenagers used to who were drinkers. So we're seeing fewer drinkers and drinkers drinking less when they choose to drink. However, it's not obvious from the various sources of data we have on harm that there's a big decline going on. So if you look at things like the emergency department presentation data Mm -hmm. in Victoria, the data systems aren't really set up to monitor for alcohol as a risk factor. So there's problems with these systems in terms of using them for research, but they're not showing these declines. They're sort of stable for young people in some states, increases in some states. Some measures decline. I mean, there's so many different harms as well. So you talk about police data and emergency data and ambulance data and uh, and every state has their own systems. And really there's no clear pattern coming out of those data. So it, the best we could say is that harms probably aren't increasing at the moment for young people, but they're not coming down anything like as fast as consumption. So question then, you said that the uh, people born in the 70s and early 80s are doing the most drinking. Is that the, the case? Is Are we seeing an increase in drinking in those some of those other age groups? So that, that cohort... W- was a heavy drinking cohort through their sort of young adult period and they're still kind mm. of probably drinking more now than 30-year-olds were 15 years ago. But the other area we're seeing quite substantial increases in is in kind of the baby boomers. They were much heavier drinkers than the people who grew up in the kind of pre-war economic um, downturn sort of period. And they, the one thing we're seeing with that group is they're not kind of, I mean, typically as you age through sort of your 50s and 60s, your drinking starts to decline. We're seeing a much slower decline in that group now. Okay. So we're seeing self-reported rates of very heavy drinking, like 20 drinks in a session, doubling for people aged over the age of 50. So it's low prevalence. Maybe 3% of people used to do that and now it's 6%. But it's a, a shift that I think is not thought about much in this field. We think about alcohol, we think about young people as a problem. Mm. We think about you know violence on the streets or the kind of short-term harms, but they're... We're making no gains amongst the older populations. In fact, things are getting a little worse. And that's an area where there's lots of different risks from drinking that aren't kind of sexy or, or friendly to the media. Things like you know medication use and alcohol consumption that often mm. have clashes. It's a real area I think we need to worry about more and try and shift our emphasis a little bit from not, not ignoring the fact that young people have lots of issues still with drugs and alcohol, but that there's a, a population who are kind of being ignored from a public health perspective. Still, it is good to have some optimistic news about the, the kids today. Yeah, I mean, it's great. And it's not, it, it turns out it's, it's not even just alcohol and drugs. There's a, a, a conversation I had with some crime researchers who are seeing that less crime amongst this kind of teenage group as they come through. And, and there was a nice study that looked at something like 15 countries in Europe and self-reported 
fights at school, and that's gone down a lot in the same period. So we're seeing a real, I mean, if, if it holds and if it's real, a real transformation that could have amazing flow-on effects over time. Well, thank you very much for that note of optimism. Um, that was Michael Livingston from La Trobe University. Vitamin C. Everyone associates it with this time of year, the wintry, cold part of the year. And that's because somewhere along the line, there has been a link drawn between vitamin C and curing colds. But I don't know, is this really the case? I'm assuming you you, 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 know, you know the answer to this question. <laughs> well, I think it's a very important question. And now more than ever, because recently vitamin sales have just taken over from painkiller sales in Australia, oh. which is an interesting time in the pharmaceutical market. It that is. You've got things that don't necessarily have a whole lot of evidence behind them being sold in higher rates than painkillers, which do have a bit more evidence behind them as to, you know, helping out with symptoms of things. Well, right. also, also you can usually tell pretty quickly whether a painkiller worked or not. Yeah. Those vitamins, it's a bit trickier to know because totally. you don't really know what they're supposed mm-hmm. to be doing. But on the other hand, you can't have too much of a vitamin and you can usually overdose on them. And, well, and like, that's, but, but you that's can overdose right. worse on painkillers. That's true. Yeah. Um, but there, there is some evidence that vitamins are not good for you as well. Well, some it all depends well, on, on, about, yeah. on the type of vitamin, really, yeah. and um, whether it's water-soluble, so it can be, it can go out through your urine. Um, but it is an interesting time to have this conversation okay. around vitamins because they are sort of on the up and up. They are. Certain famous people um, endorsing them oh, on they, certain yeah. television shows that I'm not going to mention. But anyway, but I thought I'd look at vitamin C in general because it is a very interesting molecule and we do have a sometimes segment on Lost in Science, the molecule in a minute. Mm -hmm. So clock starts now. Okay, all right. So (laughs) So what is the molecule? (laughs) The molecule is vitamin C, which is um, also known as ascorbic acid. It's a water-soluble vitamin and it means it's good, like I said. A water-soluble vitamin means that it's going to pass through your urine, go out through your kidneys if you take too much of it, as opposed to a fat-soluble vitamin, which will stick around in your fat and then could possibly lead to high levels and toxic levels of a vitamin. Well, that sounds good. It makes it sound safe. Yeah, it is a lot safer than some of the other vitamins. Now, humans are unable to synthesize vitamins see themselves, which probably comes as no surprise to you, but it's quite different to many animals in our in the animal kingdom. Cats, for example, synthesize yep. their own vitamin C. So you don't need to give them orange juice or anything. Um, they get by just, they, they they have to, I guess, because they eat mostly meat. Yes, they are obligate carnivores. Mm. Exactly. So we need vitamin C to make collagen. Mm. Which a lot of people would know collagen is the stuff that gets injected into faces. <laughs> keeps keeps your lips nice and plump keeps, looking. Keeps your lips looking weird yeah. and like chucky a little bit. But collagen is pretty much an essential component of our connective tissue. Mm-hmm. So if you think about your muscles, that's all connective tissue or anything that's joining your muscles to your bones or pretty much anything that's connecting anything else needs collagen and therefore needs vitamin C. So in that old song about the, the knee bones connected to the thigh bone... Is collagen in between there and they just left it out of the song? Is that what they're saying? <laughs> Collagen's on a different scale, but okay. yes, collagen is in, if you read between the lines in that song, 
you'll find collagen. Yeah, it should be the collagen song. Yeah, it should be the collagen song. If you don't get enough vitamin C, your connective tissue starts deteriorating. It becomes really thin and obviously not very connective anymore, which is exactly what happens when you get scurvy. So scurvy Ah. is the disease that you get when you don't have enough vitamin C Mm -hmm. and your gums start... the scurvy. Ar, the scurvy. Scurvy dog. Yes. And your gums start bleeding and your teeth become really loose because Mm -hmm. there's no collagen or the collagen isn't as a protein isn't functioning properly to hold your sort of gums, the connective tissue in your gums together. So it's breaking down. And it's breaking down. So what we're saying is vitamin C is good if you're suffering from scurvy. Or preventing scurvy. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's why. That's not question. We're not going to question that at all. No. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely imperative to preventing scurvy. Yeah. yeah. Getting enough vitamin C. That's right. So most people need between 80 to 100 milligrams per day. If you're smoking, you need more than that. Oh. Yeah. And the way we get that is normally through delicious fruit and vegetables that we eat. Can you guess the top three fruit and vegetables that contain the most vitamin C? The top three. Yeah. Um, Just a... Well, oranges obviously going to be up there, surely. Eh. No? Not okay. in the top three, Chris. Okay, okay, okay. How about something... Um, my next guess is going to be something like um, cabbage. No. It's not a fruit. <laughs> she said fruit and vegetables, didn't she? I did. I said oh, fruit and okay. vegetables. Okay, fair enough. Bananas. No. Oh. Tomatoes. No. Uh, kiwi fruit. No. Oh, ki- kiwi fruit is in the top three. Hey. With oh, 85 milligrams. Yes. Oh, there is important part um, of the standard yeah. diet. Um, think of your um, peppers. Oh, I just sort of gave it away. Capsicum. Yeah, capsicum. <laughs> are they okay? Are they number one? They are number two. And what is number one? And number one is something that I would never guess: the guava. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it comes out on top with two hundred and six milligrams per guava. Kind of a disappointment. Really? I thought that was pretty impressive. No, it's, it's impressive. But, I you wouldn't know, it's like. So if you have a capsicum and guava and kiwi fruit <laughs> smoothie. All the vitamins that you need in your <laughs> well, diet. Well, considering you only need 80 to 100 milligrams per day, and if you had all of them, that would add up to about 350. So you, can, okay. you could get by with just You'd one just be, kiwi you, you can eat oranges. It all you out. can eat oranges instead, if you choose. Yes, you definitely can. But as you know, vitamin C can be quite controversial. Its ability to prevent and treat common the common cold has been the subject of controversy for 70 years. And, yeah, I mean, people take vitamin C all the time, so it's very big business. Mm -hmm. The people who make these tablets, I guess, want to perpetuate that idea that you should be taking vitamin C when you get a cold. Yep. Or you should be taking supplements because that will help you. Anyway, I tracked down a review from 2013 that was by Chalker and Hamila, and it looked at all of the scientific information on vitamin C and whether – it actually reduces the incidence of colds and also the duration or the severity of the cold. And they looked at two things. They looked at continuous regular supplementation. So that's Mm -hmm. people that just take the vitamin C every day as a supplement or as a therapy. So people who just take it when they get the cold. And it looked at published data from 1966 to 2012 and it combined it all so the combined sort of total of participants was around 11,000 people. Mm -hmm. And they found that vitamin C supplementation did not reduce your chance of getting a cold, but what it did do was reduce the duration of the cold once you got it. By how much though? I don't think it was very much. 
It was not very much. A very small amount. Was that for both groups? Was that for people who took it as a therapy and those who took it as a supplement regularly before they got a cold? That was only for people who took it as a supplement. But people who took it as a therapy, there were no no effects. It didn't affect the duration and it didn't affect the incidence. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you could take vitamin C tablets to, you know, as a supplement or you could just keep eating guava. delicious guava juice yep. and get all the added bonuses that a, a healthy, balanced diet that go along with a healthy, balanced diet. So you heard it here first, guava, the new superfood. <laughs> guava stocks got to go through the roof. <laughs> Us humans have a tendency to think we have invented a lot of things and we think we're pretty smart for doing so much better than silly old nature who has to spend millions of years getting things right. Mm. But if we think about things in a slightly different way, that maybe rather than inventing things, we're often just discovering principles about how the universe works and applying them to problems that we have ourselves. And, you know, humans are really good at making new problems for ourselves too. So that's why we keep maybe discovering new things. But look, nature has also been doing this, obviously not consciously, but if any particular arrangement of an animal's body gives it an advantage, evolution will fine-tune that and make it better and work better for that animal specifically. So this process has resulted in amazing variation in animals, and us humans, I reckon, have barely scratched the surface in discovering solutions to problems that we may share with some animals that have already been solved in nature. I'm not saying that natural is, uh, you know, better than everything we do, but, you know, it's interesting to find things out that have been fine-tuned. For well, this is the of field years. of biomimicry, isn't it? That's really? right. That's right. And th- that's, a, that's a great example of one thing, the idea of camouflage. You know, humans sort of came up with that relatively recently in the last couple of hundred years, whereas in the animal kingdom, it's all over the place. But not, that, not that you notice it most of the no, time. No, no. I feel with biomimicry, though, you've got um, people and engineers and scientists looking to nature for inspiration Mm. and then drawing on that. Mm. But do you have examples of us actually creating something and then being like, oh, actually, that's exactly what is in nature? That's a very good question. I'm glad you asked, Claire. Here's a good example of that. Back in 1940, scientists figured out a way to detect objects at great distance using radio waves to bounce off planes or ships to give an indication of their location and direction of travel. And this was called RADAR, which stands for mm. radio, uh, what is it? radio Direction and Range, I yeah. think. So that was a breakthrough. But the people working on that concept were electronics engineers. And they probably didn't realise that in 1938, someone had demonstrated quite clearly that bats had been using exactly that concept to find their way around since, well, pretty much since bats had been around. But um, using using sound rather than using, radio waves. That's right, so using sound different. rather than radio waves. So, I mean, yeah, the, the same principle but uh, different uh, yeah. frequency of um, of waves. But uh, So it also was later found out that uh, dolphins and whales use a similar process mm-hmm. to navigate around, um, which, you know, submarines and things like that use. Yep which is sonar. Sonar. So this is a principle which was probably unwittingly taken from an existing characteristic behaviour of animals, but it was based on advances in technology that allowed us to detect things like radio waves. We wouldn't have been able to have radar unless we had a radar or radio wave detector. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not much use. So what about simpler technology? How about the wheel? 
How about the wheel? Well, you don't see wheels much in nature. No. I mean, no. Apart from that snake that grabs its tail in its mouth and rolls along. <laughs> Uh, the hoop which, snake. Which probably doesn't really exist. No, so I think... that's an example of how nature doesn't use a wheel. So, no, as far as we know, there are no creatures that naturally possess wheels. I have seen no, but, but there are... dogs with little carts that they can get <laughs> yeah, around with. Yeah. There are a lot of circular things <clears throat> in nature. True, but there are bacteria which have built-in rotors. Ah. So some bacteria have a flagellum which rotates completely around and is and is detached from the body of the bacteria and it moves them around like a boat propeller. Mm. So the principle of an axle, which is effectively what wheels okay. are based on, is not completely excluded from possibly existing somewhere and you know the rotor itself is kind of an axle. Wow, cuz I would say the wheel is our greatest invention, but how about how about I'm going to Sounds put like ba- you. bacteria were um, doing it first. How, what about the um, the dung beetle with his big balls of dung? Is that kind of a that's wheel? That's not a wheel. Well, that's ball. a sphere. The dung, the, dung, right. the dung beetle makes those itself, though. I mean, you yeah, know. but that's and still. And it does put again. <coughs> Just because it, it makes push. it, we make it as well. It doesn't matter. Oh, that's true. That's true. But so, okay, and how about intermediate technology? So wooden screws have been around since at least the first century of the common era. They were used making wine presses and things like that, and metal screws. Oh, okay. Uh, um, and metal screws became possible by the 18th century when lathes became sophisticated mm, enough mm. to make screws because otherwise it's very difficult to, to unless you were casting them, which would be kind of complicated. So they're a big advance on nails for holding things together and also for incrementally tightening things. Mm. There is, in fact, a species of weevil that has legs that are attached to its body by screw-shaped joints. Uh, which far predate our attempts at mechanical engineering by a few millennia. Does that mean it can be... You could potentially unscrew its legs, but that's right. pretty cruel, Chris. Can you imagine the tiniest screwdriver that you would have to I don't think them swapping their legs that? around. You know, no, that, 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 they obviously in. don't detach, but they screw into their body with by means of a thread, which gives them better strength so they can climb. They actually climb up things, and it gives them more strength the more they move their oh, leg okay. in a certain direction. It's interesting. So how about something like gears? And by gears, I mean interlocking teeth. So interlocking teeth can be found in all kinds of machines from... Cogs and stuff. Yeah, things like cogs, like early flour mills and things like that Mm. often had interlocking, you know, Mm. made out of wood uh, in in old windmills and things like that. And then you've got clocks and then you've got, you know, all sorts of vehicles with interlocking gears. The advantage in being able to precisely... Synchronized movements is an essential part of engineering reliable machines. Um, and gear ratio is very important too. But as far as making two parts of a machine move at the same speed at exactly the same time, equal sized gears with interlocking teeth are better than any timing mechanism could be, especially because they even work if you've got a couple of teeth missing. If you break a bit of a gear, it'll sort of still work. You can get by with a, a couple of missing teeth. Not too many, like, like Collingwood supporters. Oh. But, of course, nature has beat us to that breakthrough as well. In the legs of a tiny sap-sucking insect found commonly feeding on ivy plants all over the world, the plant hopper species Isis has interlocking gears that connect its hind legs internally, allowing it to hop at incredibly fast speeds with very short pauses between jumps, oh. which is an obvious advantage. And also, it means both legs kick off at the same time, which mm. which is a great advantage for moving in the right direction. If you hop and one leg goes off first, you'll sort of fly yeah. off in the, wrong, yeah. in the wrong way. Sounds like mechanical engineers just need to 
get out their um, microscopes and start looking a bit closer. Maybe maybe, at maybe interact the with world. yeah, maybe interact with, with biologists. Some entomologists. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously, these gears in the insect are not wheels, but they're definitely toothed, semicircular gears by any kind of reasonable mm. definition. So it's just more evidence that if we ever have a problem, it's probably arisen before and that a solution may already be there, out there somewhere waiting for us to discover it. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science where we have plumbed the depths of the insect world for mechanical innovations. We have seen vitamin C and uh, its its (laughs) lack of efficacy for your colds. I suppose. And we have found out why young people aren't drinking perhaps as much as they should. I mean, as they used to. As as their elders. As their elders. Lost in Science, it is recorded at studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australian Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we think we are Lost in Science on 3CR. And you can find us on Twitter. Or you can um, download our podcast. Or you can just listen to us on the radio same time next week. When once again, Stu, Claire, Manisha and Chris intend to get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.